Okay, so let's do this. Let's go ahead and we're going to open up the word. We're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to take three weeks. Like I said, we're going to go into the core values of the kingdom of God. I think growing up, um, probably if you ever went to Sunday school or, or any kind of little uh, Bible classes growing up, you probably heard something about the Beatitudes. And, and I remember them being like a, a thing we saw on a, a, a flannel graph or something in our Sunday school. And I just never knew what a Beatitude was. And they said, it's an attitude you're supposed to be. And I thought, okay, well, there it is. I'm supposed to have these attitudes. And then they said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And I went, I don't want to be poor in spirit. It's not something I'm into. And, and it just never connected with me, even at a young age when I, when I heard those things in Sunday school, how important this teaching is. And so let me set it up for you, and then we will get into it. But... Um, what we're going to find out is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and I know so many of you are familiar with this, but if you're not familiar with it, the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus' first public message. It's the first preaching message where he unpacks truths of the kingdom of God. Up until this point, he actually only said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We find that in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Said he began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what's interesting is this, that that repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was repeating a message that had been already preached. He was actually quoting someone else. Anybody know who he was quoting? John the Baptist. So John the Baptist shows up and says, everybody needs to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And interestingly enough, the Son of God, when he starts his ministry, the only message he has is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Matthew chapter 4 tells us this, that he was doing great miracles and people were gathering in masses, but Jesus' main message was simply this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, those phrases may seem pretty simple and we might think we have kind of an idea of, of what they mean, but let me, just, let me just go through it a little bit and unpack what he was actually saying. Of course, repent, it means change the way you think so you can change the way you act. Change your mind so you will relate differently to God and to people. And what he was doing in that time was he was speaking right into first century Jewish culture. And he was, he was saying this, what you think the kingdom of God is, it isn't. You have to change the way you think about the kingdom of God, about who God is, what he calls his people to live like. You have to change right now and the reason is, change the way you think because the kingdom is at hand. Now, when the Jew, the first century Jew, would have heard the kingdom, he would have been thinking about something probably way different than, than we think about uh, in uh, 2020 in America. The first century uh, Jewish person would have been familiar with the unfolding story 
of Israel and the scriptures. He would have been familiar with the idea that David, King David, had, had a, that God had made a covenant with him and promised him that there was a king coming from his lineage who would ultimately sit on the throne of Israel and that that king would have an everlasting kingdom. The, the first century Jew was completely aware of this and that that king that was coming would be Messiah. He would be God's anointed one to restore the kingdom of heaven to Israel. They would have been thinking about a very Israel-centric manifestation of the kingdom of God on the earth through David's throne, okay? That was, that's what the first century Jew would have heard. He wouldn't have been hearing necessarily, uh, we're going to do signs, wonders, miracles, and power. That would be probably what, you know, some people that, that are in the church in America would hear, like the kingdom being released is the power of God being released. He would have been hearing the king that's been the, the one that all of Israel's been looking for, he's here. We got to change how we think because that kingdom is getting ready to be inaugurated now. That's what he would have been hearing. And so when Jesus is unpacking this, when John is unpacking this, that statement, repent, change your mind, because the kingdom is at hand, that was a shocking statement, because at hand, what that is, is a Jewish idiom. Uh, in, 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 in Hebrew, the way that they would describe um, proximity had to do with uh, where a thing was happening uh, in time. And in other words, if they would say it's coming, they would say uh, it's at the front. If, if they were saying it's, it's uh, in the past, they would say it's at the back. But if they're saying something is happening and it's right here, right now, they would say it's at the hand. And so what the Jew would have heard is, change your mind. Because the long-promised kingdom with David's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson who's going to rule on the throne forever, the Messiah, the son of David, change your mind because that one is right here. And so this is not some sort of, you know, cliche kind of statement. And, and Jesus didn't go, well, hey, that was cool. John came up with something cool to tell them. I'm... I'm going to tell them the same thing. No, this was a bomb drop. They were say, what John and Jesus were saying was, everything changes right now. And that's what the, the, the first century Jew would have heard. So as Jesus is, is um, beginning his ministry, it, it's really interesting because he's so tactical and strategic He's only saying that thing. And that, that phrase, repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand, is such a teaser. And then he's doing miracles, so much so that all over the region, all beyond Israel, all through Judea, as far as Tyre and Sidon, I mean, it's, it's all over the region. The noise about this prophet who's doing all these miracles is, is breaking out and people are gathering from everywhere. And so when the crowd gets the largest, what Jesus does is he goes outside of Capernaum, he gets up on a mount, there's thousands of people likely gathered, he sits them all down, and now he's going to unpack what the kingdom is. 
So when you read the Sermon on the Mount, think of it this way. Jesus has been teasing them that the king is coming, the king is here, that the kingdom is coming. You're going to have to change your mind about what you think it is. He gets all the people so, so piqued in their interest. And then what happens is when the crowd gathers really big, he goes, here's what I'm talking about. Here's what the kingdom is. Now, I had an experience with the Lord in 2006 that radically, radically changed my life. I was in a time of study. I was, I was leaning into uh, studying the Sermon on the Mount. And um, as I began to lean more into it, the Lord was really just ministering to me about it. And he was, he was convicting me and encouraging me all at the same time. Uh, you know, I, I've come to find out that the conviction of the Lord is clean and pure. You know, the Lord, he doesn't smack us. He, he points out, you know, things that need to be made more excellent in us that need to be changed. But he also, at the same time, offers us grace to be able to shift it. And so I was in this season of studying the Sermon on the Mount. And I began to realize that what Jesus was giving us in the Sermon on the Mount and his values and his culture and that this whole thing was the treatise of the kingdom of God. And as I'm realizing this, I'm comparing the Sermon on the Mount with what I've come to understand as Christianity. And my challenge was the things that Jesus was emphasizing in the Sermon on the Mount were things that were either completely ignored or completely de-emphasized. And in some cases, in my Christian experience, the exact opposite had been taught and, and had been amplified and encouraged. Jesus was saying things like, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. And these truths were rolling right through me and I was realizing I have never once considered it a blessing to be persecuted. Even tonight if I said, okay, we're gonna have an altar call at the end, I want to impart the blessing of persecution into your life. Nobody is answering the altar call. And so what I started realizing is what Jesus was calling blessed and what were the values of the kingdom and then the corrections that he was giving and the lifestyle that he was laying out, must, saying that that's what must be lived by those that are in the kingdom, it was completely different in so many ways from what I had understood as Christianity and I'd been saved, I don't know, almost 20 years at that time. And so for me, it was a literal come to Jesus time. And I had to take real inventory of my own life and look at what I was esteeming and valuing versus what Jesus esteemed and valued. And then I had to, there had to be a reckoning. It was in that season the Lord spoke to me. He said, there's a collision coming. For many, there's a collision coming. The collision is coming between me, between the Lord and those who call themselves Christians but don't live by the values of my kingdom. And man, it was, it was intense, fearsome. I was encouraged and convicted. And I recognized that the Lord, he's serious about what he 
called his church to live in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, he's serious about this. This isn't just a list of good ideas. It's not a list of rules. It's not another set of commandments. It's actually the values and the lifestyle that believers are supposed to live as subjects of the kingdom of God. And I began to, as I began to just really delve into this, I realized, oh, the character of the kingdom is set by the character of the king. So these values aren't just good ideas, they're actually Jesus' own values. They're what he likes, they're what he values. This isn't a list of do's and don'ts to be discarded, this is him expressing the way he thinks and feels and what is ultimately his own value system that he's invited all of us into. Does that make sense? And so when we're looking then at the core values, we have to recognize that they're the essential values that subjects of the kingdom of God are to live. They speak of his very nature. They're not just rules to keep. They're the values of his own heart. They're what he is like and they're what he likes. And so we are to embrace his values. And when we embrace his values, we're actually embracing him. Hear me. When we look at the value system and we say, yes, I want to be like that, what we're saying is, I want to be like you, Lord. Make me like you. And so in each one of these, and we'll take some time on each one, but in each one, there's this interesting pattern that they all follow. There's this pronounced blessing, blessed are, then there's a stated value, and then there is a reward that those that live that value receive. Really interesting format. He gives it to us eight times straight. There's a blessing on you if you live this way and there is a reward. The blessing and the reward, I believe it's this sort of double good and here's the value to live. I'm blessing you, here's how to live, and here's the specific reward. In other words, I'm empowering you to walk this out as you say yes in the grace of God and as you say yes to this value, there will be something I will tie in reward for you as you walk this out. Now, let me just be really clear. The kingdom of God, we enter the kingdom of God by grace through faith. Nobody works to get in the kingdom. We can't work in any kind of a way to receive the, the grace of God in salvation. Salvation is free. It's empowered only by grace. It's our faith that, that enables us to connect to that grace. That's how it is. We don't work for this thing. But in the kingdom of God, we are saved by grace through faith, but we are rewarded according to our works. Huge, huge point. And there's multiple verses in the New Testament that bear that out, but Jesus explains that. He, he actually lays that out right there at the beginning with, with the value system of the kingdom, the core values. Each one of these has a, a, a reward tied to it. So this is a huge concept that we're living and saved by grace, but we are rewarded 
by what we agree with in grace in working out our salvation. We are rewarded by the works that grace empowers. All right. Now let's just quickly, we'll touch an overview of the values. I'll just, I'll work us through all of them real quickly. And then we're going to come back and we, what I realized for me was I had to redefine what it means to be blessed. Just by reading Jesus' words, I thought, what you're saying is blessed and what I think is blessed are not the same thing. So I want to redefine that for us just a little bit according to the Bible. And then tonight, we'll, we'll touch on being poor in spirit and, and, uh, and, and, and being, uh, living in spiritual, spiritual mourning. All right. So the, the values of the kingdom, just, just quickly. First is being poor in spirit. We'll go through that in detail. And the promise is you, you receive the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. And in a lot of ways, the only way, what, what I see this as is the, the doorway of the kingdom is only able to be entered by those who will admit that they're poor in spirit. And I'll break that down a little bit in just a minute. Second, he says, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. So mournful shall be comforted. Now he's not talking about those that are mourning because of the loss of maybe a family member or a friend. He's talking about a specific kind of mourning here. It's spiritual mourning. And there is a, a, a whole uh, level of uh, revelation that he actually unpacks later, and we'll look at that tonight. He says, the mournful will be comforted. He says, blessed are the meek. They're going to inherit the earth. And I remember for years, I just read that, blessed are the meek, they're going to inherit the earth, or I would hear that, you know, the meek are going to inherit the earth. What does that mean? Like, they, they, they're going to inherit the earth? Like, I don't understand. And, and this is a cornerstone, foundational truth of, that you got to kind of get if you understand, to, to understand what Jesus is pointing to. He's pointing to, through the values through the prescribed lifestyle to live in Matthew chapter six and, and through tying it all together and walking these things out in Matthew seven, he's pointing to this, that we live in this age for very real and powerful rewards that we will experience in the age to come. And he definitely gives us real detail on the age to come. And uh, you know, you can, you can kind of get to this place where you think, you know, well, when we die, we kind of just go to heaven and we're just sort of, I don't know, we're just, we get a toga of some sort and there's a cloud, I don't know. And it's sort of this ethereal, mystical kind of experience. But that is not the narrative of scripture because if Jesus is promising us rewards that quote unquote don't really count, what good is the promise of the reward? Why would Jesus do that to us? Why would he promise us stuff that's sort of ethereal and, and just cloudy and wispy? Is he just teasing? No, he's promising us rewards that actually matter. In fact, they matter to the uttermost. They matter at the highest level. So if they matter, if they're really rewards that really matter, they've got real tactile meaning for us, uh, then we have to understand, we have to esteem those rewards uh, uh, the right way. And what you find is the biblical narrative shows us that 
this age, how we live in this age, has incredible continuity to the age to come. That things don't just sort of disappear, everything turns into clouds and we're sort of, you know, floating around with angel wings on our back somehow. But that there is real continuity between this age and the next, that Jesus Christ is going to return, he's coming to the planet. And so when he says the meek shall inherit the earth, he's actually describing who gets to rule and reign with him in the age to come. His leadership team in the age to come are the meek from this age. That's what he's describing. I'll break that down in more detail next week. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. And it kind of begs the question, filled with what? Filled with righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled filled with righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. They will receive mercy. The pure in heart, they're going to see God. The peacemakers, and I just preached on this just recently, a couple messages, they'll be called the sons of God. And the persecuted, they receive the kingdom. Now, it's interesting because the persecuted the, the uh, promise for the persecuted is the same as the promise for the poor in spirit. All right. Now let's think about this word blessed. Uh, there's no end to the amount of teaching, reading you can do in, in the Western world that will tell you that uh, God wants you blessed. And I believe that. I believe the Lord wants you blessed. Now, I also believe this, that oftentimes what we do is we approach the word according to um, our culture and what we're used to in in the West, and what we can do is easily mix what uh, equals uh, human success in our world and say, okay, so human success is it's, you know, being wealthy, having a good job, having a, a nice house, a good car, um, you, you know, having a- autonomy in certain ways and liberty. This is blessed because that's what seems to be esteemed in our society. And so then what we'll do is we'll go ahead and superimpose what we think of as successful or prosperous right over onto the Bible and say, so therefore, if I'm going to be blessed, I'm going to be prosperous in a way that's defined by our culture. Does that make sense? The, the, the challenge with that is this, Western prosperity isn't necessarily biblical blessing. Biblical blessing is a completely different thing. And like I mentioned a few moments ago, it's just as simple as this. When he said, blessed are the persecuted, I just thought, I don't think me and you think blessing is the same thing. And it it required me when I first got into this study to go back and look at every verse in the Bible that said what blessing was or what being blessed was. And it was eye-opening. Because God's mentality of blessing and my mentality of blessing were extremely far apart. Let me just give you a, 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 first, a, a few verses. Just, let me just read the Bible to you. 
that, that actually describe uh, in, in part what being blessed is. Psalm 94, verse 12, he says, blessed is the man whom you chasten and whom you teach out of your law. And I just thought, you know, I don't know if you grew up, you know, getting spankings. I did. I, I never got a spanking from my parents and went, I'm so blessed. Thank you. That felt so good. The Lord says, you're blessed if he corrects us, if he chastens us. And we find out when we study the correction of the Lord that his correction is a manifestation of his love. It's not a manifestation of his rejection. And there, therein is the blessing. And he says that even chastening, it, it might for a moment, it seems not very nice. It doesn't feel so good. But in the end, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, here's the point. What God thinks of as blessed oftentimes isn't what makes for our momentary pleasure. It's not what makes for our temporal comfort. What God thinks of as blessed is what makes for our eternal reward. Does that make sense? That's a critical thought. So Psalm 112 verse 1, praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. That's, that's an interesting thought. Some people, they, nowadays they say, you don't need to fear the Lord. They're, they're, you know, he, he's your buddy. He's your pal. He's your daddy. And, and I agree that Jesus is our friend and that the, God is our father, but that doesn't do away with the, the verses that say we're blessed when we have a holy reverence and fear of him. Not that we cower away from him, but that we revere the greatness and the glory of who he is. Psalm 41, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. Interesting. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. James 1.12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Now just think about that. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Just think that through. Now, when, the last time when you were going through a trial and you felt the pressure and the, the difficulty of that trial, and, and you are, you're calling on God, you're hanging on in the grace of God to make it through the difficulty of the trial. In your mind, are you thinking, I am so blessed right now. The Lord is, but for us, we don't tend to do the math that way. But when we make it through the trial, the Lord is looking at us and he says, you are so blessed and you have no idea, you've just qualified. Uh, uh, there's a day coming, I'm putting a crown on your head because you persevered through that trial. You and I are going through a human difficulty. I, I, I've done this a thousand times. I'm going through the human difficulty and I just keep thinking, God, where are you? Why are you doing this? Come on, you're better than this, you know. You're better. I, don't, I shouldn't have to go through hardships. He goes, buddy, I am trying to reward you with something eternal right now. 
Stay in the game. You'll thank me later. And I've grown fond of this idea of getting paid later. Because here's the thing. I can get paid now. I can go through something right now and people go, oh man, a boy, you did it, way to go. Here, this is Billy, look what he went through. How good, everybody clear, clap. Or I can go through it in the grace of God, persevere, thank God that he carried me and there's a day coming, Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the Father will reward you openly. I don't know how wondrous that's going to be, but I would way rather have the open reward of the Father than the hand clapped of a few people on earth. Do you see what I'm saying? And so there's a whole mentality when you get into the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is giving us that it's if you will live faithfully in this age, there is something of so much, a, a much grander and greater reward coming. Stay faithful right now. And there's something that God's going to release to you in a day ahead that is truly blessed. Matthew 5, 11, just a, a few verses down, he goes, blessed are you. This one is a big deal. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You ever had the person just bold-faced lie about you because they didn't like you, because maybe they thought you were a Christian, they just make stuff up and tell your coworkers or your neighbor just junk about you that's just not true, or they insult you, you're just a this, that, and the other. I've been called quite a few things, and uh, you know, never in the moment of being called something did I feel like, oh, I just feel so good right now. I'm so blessed. The, the blessings are showering me. As you're insulting me, I just feel like I'm under the rain of the blessings. But it's absolutely the truth. Blessed are you when they insult you, when they say all manner of things against you falsely for the name of Jesus. Blessed are you. And then finally, uh, Matthew 11. Oh, I'm skipping. Luke 6. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. You can just go back to that one later, count your blessings. But Matthew eleven six, 6, he says, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So, I mean, just a cursory reading of the broadness of what is considered blessing should sort of adjust us when we consider how God leads and provides for and blesses his people. Blessing by Jesus' standards and according to the kingdom of God is not always what makes for our temporal comfort. In fact, oftentimes, it actually makes for our temporal discomfort and what's gonna happen is a day ahead, we're gonna experience a massive reward. And beloved, I'm just telling you, if you can get the mentality that you're gonna get paid later, oh, it's a, it is a worthwhile way to, to think about your life, that you're not living for this age, 
but you're living for the age to come. It's actually the way that Jesus unfolds things in the whole Sermon on the Mount. All right, with those things in mind, let's go ahead and let's look at the first value of the kingdom. Matthew chapter five, verse three. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so just reminding us, these values are the prescribed value system of believers, of those that are subjects of the kingdom. So the first one is poor in spirit. So believers, you and I, we are to live our lives poor in spirit. Now these values are not things we graduate from. You know, somebody say, well, I, you know, I'm, I don't wanna be poor in spirit, I'll be rich in spirit. So I'm just, I'm gonna graduate out of being poor in spirit. No, that's not why he gave us this value. Now we are truly rich in salvation. We truly are rich by the fact that we have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. I mean, that's, I mean, immeasurable richness. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is how you think of your own neediness. How you think of your own necessity. And, and so the, the Greek word for poor, it has so many different definitions. It, it, it means this, literally means reduced to beggary, destitute of wealth, destitute of position, destitute of influence and honor, lowly, afflicted, helpless, powerless and needy. Now just think about all those words I just used. Nobody in the flesh wants to be any of those. We want to be powerful. We want to be supplied. We want to have influence and honor and position and wealth. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's who gets the kingdom. And this is what you have to come to. The only way you can enter the kingdom is by coming to the conclusion that you have nothing to offer, that you are completely destitute, that you are without hope and helpless, that you are absolutely needy, you are bankrupt spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and in every way, you are a beggar. That's the only way you can enter the kingdom. Here's why. If you think you can come to Jesus believing that you've got, you know, a whole bunch of good stuff going on and you really just need Jesus in there to kind of help you with a couple points, you've completely misunderstood the absolute abject poverty of broken, sinless humanity. 
We have nothing to offer. There is nothing good in and of ourselves. The, the, the arguments about the, the, the nature the, of, of humanity, about human nature, are people basically good or basically evil? And, and you see those two you know, philosophical sides go back and forth. The, the, the people that argue for basically good, they tend to say people are basically good, but their surroundings have made them basically evil. And I always just ask the same question. If people are basically good, how did they make basically evil surroundings that corrupted them? Impossible. People are all under the same curse. We're all under the brokenness of sin and and tends to be this challenge that we mostly don't recognize just how needy we really are. We mostly don't realize that we are lost, helplessly, hopelessly lost without any answers. We don't have a way in and of ourselves. If someone can hit rock bottom, I mean, really come to the place of saying, man, I've got no chance, then they have a chance. Because it's the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. And so uh, what I found is this, that my own propensity, uh, you know, as I, as I got in serving the Lord, I, you know, I, when, I, when I got saved, I was, I was so aware, man, I'm lost, I, I'm broken, I was messed up. I mean, I, I had so many obvious problems with my life. There were so many things on the outside that were an obvious you know, mess. I was messed up in drugs and, in, and alcohol and so many other ways. And, and so when I came to Jesus, it was so evident. I, I needed deliverance. I needed saving. I needed help so badly. And then I got serving the Lord after a while. And, and you know, there's this verse in, in the book of Joel, let the weak say, I am strong. That's so often ripped completely out of context. It has nothing to do with Christians going, I used to be weak, but now I'm strong. Paul, he confessed that it was only in his weakness that God was able to be strong through him. And so you don't graduate out of this poverty of spirit. But here's what, here's what my experience was. As I began to get cleaned up on the outside, I started getting aware of the transformational power of God that had been, you know, working in me and changing me. And so I started feeling like, you know what? I, I'm, I'm strong, man. I, I'm not poor anymore. I'm not needy like that anymore. Don't, don't say I'm needy, man. I, I'm rich, man. I, I've got, I'm blessed, man. I, I've got the anointing. I have authority. I have a name, you know, and, and all this stuff. And, and then what the Lord had to do was let me get so full of my own thoughts about my own ability that I I just popped, <laughs> you know, just, he just popped that big head and let me see that I'm absolutely lost even today without him. And that's how all of us are. And when you wake up in the morning, someone who's truly poor in spirit, they get out of bed with no confidence in their own ability. We, it's like we sang tonight, he is our confidence. He is our hope. He, he is our strength. He is everything. 
It's only through being poor in spirit that you can embrace that value. And that's what Jesus communicates out of the gate about the kingdom of God. He goes, guys, you're gonna have to get this. This is gonna be the song all the days of your life and into eternity that you are poor without me. And what did he say to Laodicea? He said, because you think that you're rich and have need of nothing, but you do not know, church, that you're poor, you're miserable, you're blind and you're naked. See, the reason why they weren't experiencing the covering and the grace and the strength of God is because they came to believe in their own strength. And it's the very challenge that Israel had. And the Lord said, he goes, I'm gonna bless you and in a day ahead, don't begin to believe that just because my blessing is upon you, that you, your own hand brought you this, this wealth. That it was me. He goes, you have to remember, you're poor. I'm the one with everything. Beloved, the first value of the kingdom of God is that we are all poor in spirit. We're desperately in need. We're desperately in need of Jesus. Uh, I put this in the notes. Uh, it means living completely dependent upon Jesus. Uh, it's the estate uh, of our lives for the entirety of our lives in this age. And it just, it simply means we live with an acute revelation of our own spiritual poverty. And there's a few implications of this. If you're aware of being poor in spirit, then number one, you never imagine that the Lord owes you anything. A revelation of being poor in spirit, it, it delivers you from an entitlement mentality. I always kind of, uh, you know, kind of br bristle a little bit, shudder a little bit when I hear believers say, well, I deserve, and then fill in the blank. And because I just think about it and I go, well, man, if we really are honest, we all deserve eternity in hell. And anything that we have that's better than an eternity in hell is an absolute blessing from God. And so that, that idea that we deserve anything, it shows that we're actually not aware of our own spiritual poverty. The I deserve dot, dot, dot. I always, that always makes me shudder. Even when I hear it coming out of my own mouth, I go, oh, I deserve better. And I know the Holy Spirit goes, do you? Do you did you work for something to make it your existence better? Is there some reward you should have got because of your own goodness? I go, oh, I'm sorry. Well, the other thing is if, if we understood our own spiritual poverty, we'd never believe that we could do anything to gain God's love or his approval. It would deliver us from entitlement and it would deliver us from this, this um, you know, works mentality to work for his love. Because if you could really see your own wretchedness, really see your own destitution, just, the, just your abject poverty, and then realize he really did reach down in the muck and lifted me up. 
Oh man, and he did it not because I could earn it, because I don't have anything to offer. I have nothing to offer. He goes, I'm not asking you to offer me anything. I just want you. I go, I'm, I'm horrible. He goes, exactly, I want you. But as soon as I think, I have something to give you. I, I, I've got a reason to be liked by you. There's a few things that I've got to offer you. I, I can show you. I'm actually good in these areas. He goes, I'm kind of not interested. He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the poor in spirit, to the humble. See how that works? You'd never imagine that there's anything you could work to do to attain God's love if you realize how poor in spirit you really are. Thirdly, I'd say this, that if we really had an understanding and revelation of our spiritual poverty, we would daily live in gratitude for all that we have. The entitlement mentality would go, that, that servant mentality would go, and gratitude would fill our hearts. That God rescued us. He lifted us from the ashes and seated us with princes. Okay, amen. That's poor in spirit. All right, now let's look at uh, uh, spiritual mourning. And we'll take the next 15 minutes and, and we'll land with this. So Matthew chapter five, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, as I mentioned, this is not natural mourning. This is about spiritual mourning. This is about longing and desiring Jesus. This one and hungering and thirsting for righteousness are two that will get you in trouble with people. I mean, all these will get, probably ultimately get you in trouble with people. I think if you do the first seven, that's why he gave us number eight, blessed are the persecuted. But spiritual mourning is kind of like that, you know, it's the person that's living where they're grateful, they love him, but they want so much more. They're so hungry for more. And what happens is when you live in spiritual mourning, it begins to affect you at an emotional level. It affects your, your emotional status that you're actually longing and aching and desiring. It's what Jesus talked about. It's, it's, it's what was written in the Song of Songs where he said, uh, the, the maiden, she says, I am lovesick for my beloved. I'm living with a heart that's longing to be with him. And, and the reason why that gets you in trouble with people is that if you're living, seriously, in this age, you're living mourning, longing for Jesus in a way that's affecting you internally, people are gonna be like, hey man, can you just like chill down? Like that longing, mourning thing, like, just, just be okay. Like, aren't, can't you just be okay like the rest of us? And the answer of the morning, the longing heart is, I won't be okay until I'm with him. And it's actually what Jesus explained his followers would be like. That they would be a bit undone until they're with him. 
spiritual mourning is that place of desire and aching that's compelling you into pursuit and it actually puts you in this position of seeking God with abandonment, not striving in the flesh, but in the grace of God. As I'm longing to see you, I want you and it will upset, it will ruffle the feathers of everybody else that isn't longing and mourning. David said this, I've become a song of the drunkards because I've been uh, eaten up by zeal for you. He says, zeal for your house has consumed me and the drunkards are mocking me in songs. And he says, those who sit in the gate, the authorities, this is Psalm 69, he says, the authorities of the land, he says, I'm a byword to them. They use my name as a joke is the idea. Oh, you're just like David. Just think about that for King David, aching and longing for God. That's why he said, one thing I've asked, that's one thing I seek, to dwell in your house, to gaze on your beauty, to inquire because he was living a life of desire. I wanna tell you something. Living a tidy life, acting like it's all good, you got it all together, is actually not what Jesus prescribed. Now, I'm not saying you should walk around as a basket case, but I am saying there should be a, a healthy sense of, man, I miss him. I want to be with him. You know, Jesus himself, he told his own disciples, he says, I'm not gonna drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. He's talking about a real day when really he will sit down with his followers and we will drink heavenly wine. Now that's gonna be great, okay? But I want you to think about this. Jesus himself is fasting heavenly wine, it's clearly available to him right now. He says, I won't drink this again until I drink it with you. Because there's a longing in my heart to be with you, my people. Just like Jesus is longing for us, he wants a bride that's longing for him. So spiritual mourning is tapping into that sense of this. Yes, I, I, I hear him, speak to me, but I've never actually heard his voice, right? I feel his presence, but I've never actually felt his touch. I see who he is in the word, but I've never seen him. And I'm coming to grips with this truth that all my future all my desires, all my dreams, all my hopes, all that I'd ever want or want to be is wrapped up in him. There isn't a bucket list that's gonna scratch the itch. There isn't an applause or a platform or the praise of men or a title or a dollar amount that's going to satisfy what's happening on the inside. I'm lovesick. I'm mourning and longing for my beloved. Guys, this is how the church is supposed to live in this age, longing and aching for him. She's not supposed to walk around sort of just a little dabble, do you, Christianity, I'm good. You know, I've got the five verses, I kind of know them. And you know, I, I quit cussing and I'm just, I'm basically good, I'm good now. 
I'm happy. I'm not saying that there's never a sense of satisfaction in God, but I would say that with an asterisk, we're satisfied with all he does and we're longing for more. And this is what I realize, that Jesus, he's, he's looking for a bride that wants to connect to this sense of this truth, that what's on the inside of her, that, that what, what's in our own hearts is that eternity is written in here. That I know that I'm made for something more. That, that there's something transcendent, something of another order. I'm made for eternity. I'm made to encounter wonder and glory. I'm made to be blown away, shock and awe in God. I'm made for that. It's what David said. He says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. And, and it's having that sense on the inside that I am made for more than this. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. See, because the mourning, longing heart of desire and devotion, he promises, I am going to meet every desire. I am going to fulfill every dream. I am going to scratch every itch in your soul. And there's some times where, you know, some, I mean, you guys are prayer people. You, you know what I'm talking about? You get into this place of, in prayer and, and you're hungry for God and you're just saying, I love you. I want to encounter more of you. I want to know you more. And, and you're, you're touching something, but you just, eternity is written in here and you know there's so much more. He's infinite. And, and you know that you've just, you're just scratching the surface and that longing, that desire, that hunger, it becomes a pang on the inside. You ever, you ever mourned over the loss of a person where you just, you don't have, you can't eat and, and you can't talk and, and you just, you just can't be comforted by anything. The only thing that feels like when you've lost in that way that will help is if they would just, you know, come back. That's why he used that language. The only thing that will ultimately fulfill the longing of the, the heart of one who's spiritually mourning is if he comes back, if he comes back. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Jesus gave us real clarity on this in Matthew chapter nine. He said this, verse 15, says, and Jesus said, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Now look at it. And he says, and then they will fast. Interesting. He says, can they mourn when he's with them? He goes, no, but there's a day coming when he's taken away. Beloved, we are right now in that time when the bridegroom has been taken away. And then what he does is he says, in that day when he's taken away, then they will fast. He changes the word. What's he talking about? He's saying spiritual mourning causes you to live a lifestyle of fasting and prayer. And that's why we call our whole community to, to take one day a week, just one day a week, and just push away from the table and push into God. You know, just, just skip breakfast, skip lunch, eat after six o'clock maybe. You know, just do that. But, but instead of breakfast and lunch, you just lean in. You go, I, I'm, I miss you. I miss you. I want to I see you. 
I want to be with you. I long for you. I love you. And just make that a normative part of your life that you just live in this age with spiritual longing that's, that just comes to a ripe you know, boil in your soul. So see, the, the one that realizes he's poor in spirit and the one that's living in spiritual mourning, they don't end up having a problem so much with being lukewarm because they're living in desire of the one that desires them. So this is what my kingdom is like. He goes, you're, you're, you're poor, but I love you. I want you. He goes, and I'm going away. Long for me the way I long for you because I'm coming back and I'll comfort you. He says, then they will fast. He's giving the normative way that believers are supposed to live in this age. Spiritual mourning, it's primarily exhibited through fasting. That's the truth that Jesus gives us right there in Matthew 9. Fasting and prayer, we long for him, we ache for him, we mourn for him, and we just exhibit that by just pushing away from the table and pushing into God. And it's the entirety of our journey in this life. It's not something that we graduate from. And and here's what I'm, I'm not saying. I'm not saying you never have a moment of feeling his, his comfort. He, he's gonna tell us in a minute, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you, you will be filled. And I believe there's many, many, many fillings unto this ultimate thing called we get glorified. That's the ultimate filling with righteousness when you get the glorified body. But there is this journey of longing, touching something in God, aching, feeling his closeness, and then wanting more. And this is kind of, I, I like to explain it this way. So what happens is this, you, you go into pursuit of God, right? And, and you think, you know, there's about, out of a scale of 10, there's 10 available in God. 10, 10 points of encounter, 10 levels or something. And, and you think, I've only got like a two. And so I'm, I'm leaning in, because man, I'm, 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 I'm empty at a level eight. So you, you press into God, and, and that two, it goes to four. You know, you're fasting, you're reading in the word, you're worshiping, you're praying, you're, you're really going after the Lord, and, and you feel that increase in your own soul. So the two, it goes to four. But what happens is that two that you just increased, it opened understanding in your mind of the grandeur and the greatness of, he, of him. And whereas you thought there was only 10 available, you found out there's 20. And so you actually doubled in what you've received, but your hunger quotient doubled as well. And that's how you live in this life, guys. That's what it means to live longing, spiritual mourning, and the great, the great promise is there's a day coming when every dream will be fulfilled. There's a great day coming when every desire Every bit of that hunger, it, it will be quenched. And some people, you're, you know, they're afraid to sort of put all their eggs in one basket. They're afraid to set their affections upon Jesus in that way because, man, I gotta I got I got to be normal. I can't be weird. 
And I'm not trying to call people into some sort of mystical, you know, you're floating around and everything is, you know, you, you know, spiritual in that sense. But I'm telling you, the right compass in this life is a compass that's true north is Jesus is my destiny. Jesus is my future. That's the right compass. And that will let you know if you're on track, if you are pursuing him. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be filled. Last thought, a few passages that exemplify spiritual mourning in the scripture. Psalm 84, I think I've actually picked all Psalms of David right here. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. He, he, he understands he's on a journey. As they pass through the, the valley of Baca, that's the valley of tears. Your pilgrimage in this life is like the valley of tears. They make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength until finally each one appears before God in Zion. Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. In other words, I'm only gonna be satisfied when I step over and see you. Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The actual rendering of that verse in the original is, when shall I see the face of God? Jesus desires us, his people, to live with revelation of our own spiritual poverty and to live all of our days in this life longing and aching and desiring him. These are the first two values of the kingdom and it is our honor to live this way in this age. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and we will be dismissed. Lord, oh Lord. Thank you. Lord, I pray where staleness or dullness in any way has encroached upon our soul, would you right now just, just break it off right now? Where, where stagnancy has crept in, would you just break that off right now? Would you get us in touch with our desperate need of you and then touch that place of longing? My soul longs for you. In the dry and weary land where there is no water, I have longed to see you in the sanctuary, to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. Lord, I ask, transform us into a people that live by the values of your kingdom. 
and where we haven't been living that way, grace, I ask, release grace to change and then direct us into what it looks like to walk these things out. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. All right, God bless you. We are dismissed. God bless you gathering with us online. We'll see you next time. Amen.